Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Bodek. I'm here with Ash Beckham. Ash, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Josh. How are you? I'm very good. And I've been thinking about Boulder and your experience there and your new experience. I'd like to start by asking, everyone expects me to ask, what did you do? But I want to start by asking, before you committed to doing something, I asked you what the environment meant to you. And do you remember what you talked about? Because that's where it really comes from. Yeah, I think my initial reaction now, I'm not sure if this was my answer a couple of weeks ago, but I think it, it was a combination of kind of doing what you can, like taking those baby steps, I think is important. And for me, the environment is all about my kids and mm-hmm. what we're leaving them with. And we think we have to have these, we have to do these like monumental things and that becomes so daunting. And, and so I think doing little things was kind of like what inspired me to take some sort of action that would be repeatable, attainable and repeatable and make a shift in the way I live my life that I could continue, you know, it was all of those things kind of meant that to me, but I don't know if that answered the question. Well, I can first have to comment that I can tell that you've made major changes in your life deliberately and effectively, and probably before that ineffectively (laughs) in order to learn some of those things. Well, there's before that, I think it was with you, it was something about Boulder, about moving there, about, or adopting a See, for a lot of people, the environment is abstract. And for all the things you talked about, wanting something for the kids and so forth, that's still, like an extreme case would be if I describe what happens at 1.5 degrees of warming or two degrees of warming or three degrees of warming. We haven't really experienced that. So it might sound like terrible. We want to avoid those things, but it's not necessarily in our lives. Whereas I think I remember you talking about getting into the bolder lifestyle of hiking or things like that, or what nature was like out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think just valuing it more. I think that there's something about being here and almost the accessibility of it 365 days a year. I mean, there is, certainly we have snow, but it isn't like, I feel like growing up in the Midwest and you kind of get those gray, dark, cold, damp days from November to March and you kind of like lose touch. I feel like with the outdoors, we're here, maybe that's less the case. Like you're out, especially with the four-year-old, like we're outside every day. And so I think maybe that context and then also with the fires that happened and, and realizing oh, that yeah. it was a lot closer to us than I thought it yeah. was and that it, my idea of the wilderness urban interface was not the target down the street. It was very different than that. And having that repeatedly. And then I think since actually, since we've talked, there was one that was in our neighborhood. It was, con- I mean, not our neighborhood in our area to the point where we got pre-evacuation notices and it was contained, you know, there was nothing that was challenging and nobody got evacuated, but also it was just like another reminder of like, this is, you can't say not me really anymore. So I think that that's part of it for sure. I think is that danger piece and that it's kind of coming to roost here. I feel like it almost has climate change has been noticeable locally at different rates right? Mm -hmm. Like whether that's in a parking zone or if you're on an island that is at sea level or whatever that might be, right? Like you get it in different ways. Maybe it's droughts in the Midwest or too much rain in, you know, middle America, like whatever it is, it is hitting people differently. And I truly, and maybe because I'm oblivious, but it didn't seem to hit us as dramatically here as it Mm -hmm. has in other places. And then this in the last six months, that has absolutely been the case of like increased risk, like direct 
risk from climate change it has never been more apparent where I live and is more apparent than it has ever been anywhere I've lived. And that I feel like is almost like a swift kick in the backside to get you to start. So you got to do something like just do something, do anything, really do something like move on that path, like move the needle a little bit. We need to move it a lot, but I think more of us moving it a little is more realistic than a few moving it a lot. I try to focus on the one's personal experiences that what they think of when they think of nature. So they're fires and what are the fires burning? If like, if that forest wasn't meaningful, actually, this is really, if that forest on fire was a place you've never gone to, even if, it, if the smoke comes and affects you, that's not a great loss. It's remarkable how people say something you just said, which is it's really bad over there, but it hasn't really affected me that much yet. Right. Well, if you go back 50 years and see what was there and see what's lost now, I mean, if you're only looking at climate change, that's one thing. But if you're looking at the extinctions, like I was just talking this morning, for some reason, I, I had in my head somewhere over the rainbow, the song. And for some reason, the line, if happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why, why can't I? When I was a kid growing up, there were a few blue jays. There were a fair number of blue jays around. This is growing up in Philly, Philadelphia. There were some blue birds, but almost none. Now, forget it. There's pigeons, sparrows, starlings, a few starlings. And like here in New York, when I took the, it used to be that if I took the subway out to JFK back when I flew, there were egrets and herons around in the swampy areas, not swampy, but like the marsh or whatever, the marsh yeah. areas. Forget it. Now there's none. Yeah. And, but so someone who's moved here now has no idea. Right. And when I went through, not long before that, there would have been probably swarms of the things. Mm-hmm. And I read this book on, uh, called The Once in Future Earth, Once in Future World. And it talked about, we have 10% the wildlife we used to. It, apparently boats, sailboats back in pre-steamship times, sailboats crossing the Atlantic, in the middle of the Atlantic, no land anywhere around, would get stuck in the schools of fish so dense that the boat got stuck. And <laughs> the river here, the Hudson River, apparently would get so filled with fish that they would cause waves, like splashing up on the shore. And because they'd go spawning and doing their thing. And we, that's all gone. So, but we have this amazing ability, for better, for worse, that we just see what, we don't see what was there before. And these changes, however fast in terms of evolution time, take more than a lifetime. So like when a species goes extinct today, there's a good chance that maybe 50 years ago, there were some of them, maybe a hundred years ago, there were many of them. And maybe a thousand years ago, maybe the earth was swarming with them, but we mm-hmm. don't know it. Like the passenger pigeon, when the last one died in 1937, I think, People didn't know, people had never experienced them being all over the place. Right, exactly. So I think it's one of the things I I focus on is people's personal experience. Almost inevitably, most of my guests, when they talk about some personal experience of of theirs, what is the experience of exploring around there as opposed to the Midwest? Then almost inevitably, they'll talk also about the loss that they've observed. Sure. But- I think it's very important to remember what's worth saving, not just remember it, but connect with the emotions in it. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's critical. 
So that's why I asked that at the beginning. It's a lot of people have a rewarding experience. They do their thing. Last time I talked about my friend who went a year without buying any clothes. Right. And she got the TEDx, the, not TEDx, but the full TED talk and all this fun came out of it. And that's what she'll remember, but it's the nature. I forget what it was her connection. I know she grew up in South African and rhinos are major. She's like, I'm in love with rhinos. And I forget if that's what came up in that conversation, but that's what's really, uh, I want to make sure that people retain that connection because I believe that that intrinsic motivation will be more powerful than any extrinsic motivation that comes from doom and gloom or think of the children or anything like that. Absolutely. I've talked more theory of this with you than I think most guests. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So I think that it probably was you talking about Boulder and that lifestyle. So what did you, does that conjure up anything actually? Does that refresh your memory at all? I'm trying to remember it myself. Yeah, I think so. I remember just, I think it's the greater connection, I guess, to that outside world, whether that's like hiking, you know, like we would, I would hike or, you know, we would go to the local Metro park where I grew up, or, you know, maybe there was a bike trail that I would take when I was in college in central Ohio, but it wasn't like a integral part of my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was out, you know, I was outside. I played for sure. We like grew up in this great house with a ravine. Like I was, it wasn't like I wasn't a kid that was outdoors, but it was my backyard, the local softball field. Like that was the appreciation I feel like of the outdoor, the relationship, the integration into it. I feel like as opposed to like, going to the Grand Canyon and like looking Mm -hmm. at it or going to see the Rockies and looking at them, like actually being part of it really happened here for me. And so I think that connection just makes it feel more personal and that there's like a social pressure that exists here, which I think is undeniable of it's like who can outgreen the person. You know what I mean? It's like everybody had water bottles reusable water bottles and then they were plastic then they were like bpa free and then they were aluminum then they were recycled you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like it's just like here it's like a constant and it's like part of industry it's part of innovation it's like part of what happens here so i think that there's also this like cutting edge knowledge that people share in a good-hearted way of kind of where things are so i don't know how else like i don't know how else to exist here and be integrated into society, at least the part of society that we are associated with, like what our peer groups do, what our friend groups do. That's just kind of, it's just not even, an, it's even beyond an expectation. It's not even that, it's just like a lifestyle to hear that's just nothing that I was familiar with growing up. And I think that's also maybe a consciousness, like I don't think that's necessarily just local. I think there's a consciousness that comes from where we were in the 70s, 80s to where we are now for sure. But I think the local influence has been pretty impactful for me personally. What is your experience of it? I mean, you've described the facts of it, of the water bottle shifts and things like that. Is it fun? Is it challenging? Is it rewarding? Is it annoying or is it fun? Yeah. I mean, I no, it's not, I don't think it's annoying. I mean, there's time, you know, there's times where like, oh God, do we have to, you know what I mean? I, there's like a, maybe a immediate challenge to convenience, but it's always, I mean, and I think it's, important to put in that there's like socioeconomic privilege that I have to be able to afford those things, right? Like 
at the end of the day, like that, if there's a new greener, better, more efficient, whatever, and my wife and I have the ability and the financial means to make the choice to upgrade to that, that's something that we can do. Right. So I feel like I have to say that I acknowledge that that's, these are choices that not everybody has, but these are choices that I have. But I think it's interesting to me. It's, I feel like between my wife and I, I feel like I'm more of the skeptic of like, well, why, like, why, why we're doing this thing, we're doing a, why do we have to do 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, 5.0? Like there's a consumerism piece of it on the other end of that, that I think balances it. Like somebody tell me why this is better and why this is worth what we just did. And if you can convince me that I'm all on board, but I think just because it happens and she's also based on her industry and what she does for work, I feel like is much more resourced in those things. Like it kind of comes second nature to her because she's does the calculations pretty consistently in her head, but I'm, there's still like this part of me. It's like, what, like, why, why do we have to do that? Why are we buying these like resealable, reusable, whatever, or like we have those reusable wax papery things that are like that replace Mm -hmm. foil or we have those things. And I'm like, ah, they don't like seal it. That it's not like a seal drives me crazy, like slosh soup around in the refrigerator. Like I hate these things, (laughs) but also it's like, we've had them for eight years or, you know what I mean? Like we've had them forever and they work really well. So I think there's a piece of it for me where I sometimes roll my eyes, but it is, I think, pretty well established here. And I think we have a ton of options in all of these areas. So I feel like we're pretty resourced locally around a lot of those kind of like new advancements that are happening in sustainability. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like it's really annoying. I also love like small business and innovation. So I'm, I'd always like sparks that part of me too. We're like, Oh, well, how'd you do that differently? What thing did you see in this old product that was bad or replaceable or whatever, like improvements, small improvements and making a business out of that to me is just, that's like fun. I like geek out on stuff like that. So that piece of it, I, I enjoy. So it's really annoying I have to say that I'm hearing you're reacting to, it sounds like what you're talking about there is not a nature, but the community's innovation around waste, which is not the same thing as mm-hmm. the experience sure. of, uh, that's an experience of human community, which sounds, I was going to say awesome, but as you, you know, sometimes annoying, but sometimes intriguing and fun. Sure. How about nature itself? Trees, skies, yeah, I mean, I rivers, streams, or whatever. That's, there was like something for us about feeling so incredibly fortunate to be here during the mm-hmm. pandemic of being able to be outside, of not being stuck in our house in the city, right? Like we could pop our son in the car and go to a reservoir or a stream and climb up on a rock and throw a rock. Like we weren't stuck here because we could be outside. And I think that really enabled us to explore areas we hadn't really seen before and see them through new eyes of a two and a half year old, now a four and a half year old, right? Like, I think that that connection, I mean, I knew that we would always get outside with the kids, but there was some, you know, there's like, you're going to take a two and a half year old to a river. Like that doesn't, that's like, but you know, borderline like bad parenting. But during that, we were just like, we got to get them out of the house. Like, let's go explore. Let's go figure it out. Let's go like see our immediate area around us. 
and find something that he loves to do. So there's like this little park that we never know about. You could like hike down and hang there and he would love it and sit there forever and throw. And we would see it change over the course of the seasons and whatever, but like we could be outside. And I think that that like probably reinvigorated my love of and need for and connection to nature and wanting to see him see that. Like now he like stops his bike and saves worms. And like he is, we had one time we walked around our neighborhood and he wanted to make soup. So we picked up like different leaves that were different colors and sticks and pine cones and but you know what I mean? Like the kids are so curious about it. And it's the things like almost take for granted that are so enlightening to them that I feel like that really made local and it, here, you know, like everything is grand, like mountains are grand, like everything is like intense and mm-hmm. extreme. And to go to like the local city park river bend was like awesome. Yeah. You said it reconnected and re- maybe reignited, reconnected with those feelings. What were those, what were those feelings? And you said he's seeing something for the first time that you saw, saw before. What was that before? Mm-hmm. Well, I think for me, that's like just the joy, the freedom, the breath, the expansion, the love, the gratitude, the introspection, like all of the things that I at least get Mm -hmm. when I get outside, I was like a pretty avid would be a stretch, but like, I like to trail run when I got out here. That was like one of the things I like to do. I was like an old caught softball and destroyed my knees. So trail running was just a lot. I loved it. And so I did that a lot. And then as we moved farther away from the mountains, I didn't do it as much. And, but when I feel like there was just like a, an emotional release and reset of just being in nature and quiet and all of the things that come from that. And not that he got all of those things, but that he got maybe a natural curiosity that I experienced when I first came out here. Certainly I'm sure when I was a kid, but I don't really have a recollection of that, but like being out here and exploring new things or going back to the same place, like running the same 15 trails. Right. But like, knowing what it looked like when the leaves changed, knowing what parts were icy, like you see it change because it's part of your regular routine. And I think watching that change and then watching it come back, you're just so much more in touch with everything that happens, right? Like we know we can go there now because the leaves are covering it and it's really, really hot and we need the shade and we can't go there because what the weather did and it's probably icy, like hit him seeing the patterns of nature, I feel like, and the return and the regeneration and the growth again, I think seeing that cycle for the first time connected me to the just joy of, and just like awe inspiring passage of time that happens everywhere that like no one sees, right? There's thousands of people that drive up and down the street that this park is on. And there's probably, I mean, we would go there at times, especially during the pandemic, but we go there at times for hours and not see a single. So I think it's that this little place creating those spots that are like this little place, the feeling of connection and oneness, like our place on the river was something that I like love. Yeah, your description of the trail running and the seasons changing and that was visceral. When you talked about the ice or you talked about the leaves, I haven't been to that where you ran, but I've conjured up the comparable experiences in me. And that's what I hope to bring to listeners is listening to or hearing. Like, I think that they're going to hear their 
comparable experience of seeing seasons change, mm-hmm. exploring it, that novelty, that that joy, maybe not novelty, but the um, you said like a list of maybe it was solitude or discovery or something like that. Yeah, just like introspection, quiet, I feel like is like a huge piece of it. I feel like Luke and I can go walk on a trail and we can talk, but we also don't have to talk. Like you let him just, it's so tactile. Step in the mud and do the things and feel the cold water and dip his toe in. And we went to the reservoir not too long ago and it was not, you know, it's like April or whatever. So it wasn't warm here and he like wanted to get in the water. And so we like took off his clothes and he like jumped in the water with his underwear on and it was freezing, but like, you don't get like, where do you get that sensation? You like jump in a cold pool, maybe like in a cold bath, but like, that is like, to me, that connection of like, and I'm just like a tactile person, but like that physical feeling of like, and I have memories of sticking my foot in a river with my dad. Those feelings of like, this is what, cold mm-hmm. feels like this is like melted ice cold can you put your foot in it for that long kind of stuff i there's like nothing i don't know how to recreate that outside of nature and i don't want to so there's like some power that comes from that i think and humility gratitude all of the things right like and if you can have the connection to him of like hey it's not raining there's no snow because of blah 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 blah, blah this is lower. This where we're standing used to be underwater, but it's not anymore. Then all of a sudden do you like start to fire the synapses for him is then there's like, no, there is no other way than the like sustainably responsible way. That is so t- I mean, to me, that's visceral and, and meaningful. And I can't help but think of kids growing up and they go to the mall instead. And that's their experience of going outdoors is walking down the street. I mean, here in New York, I've had guests who grew up in Brooklyn and their experience, all they have is like the park and playing soccer, but it's still a lot. It's still meaningful. Mm -hmm. But then I think of people growing up in slums and favelas and they got nothing. Mm -hmm. Also, you said- And like their association sometimes with the outdoors is not sanitary, not safe, right? Like their safe space is- inside it's hard for me even to imagine yeah it's like because of their freedom to be like to me it can always connect to this freedom the freedom to be outside the freedom as a kid to be loud because you can because you're outside right like inside voice we like say that all the time but you're like outside you can go bananas you're like swinging on trees and doing whatever you can do all the things it feels very free to be outside where for some kids that is not safe and if it's not safe then there's no freedom and your freedom to be yourself, to not look over your shoulder, to not whatever is inside is such a different, obviously through no fault of their own, just circumstances, but like it's a completely different mindset to be afraid to be outside, like viscerally afraid to be outside. I should have gone in more depth last time into this because this is what I want to help people act on and to conserve and protect or whatever they want, whatever's right for them. That you're, you're talking about that river and you said, oh, just bring it to a river is no big deal. And I wonder if a hundred years ago, that river might've been teeming with fish and wildlife. And because when I was a kid, you could go to the river and just turn over a rock and there'd be a salamander. I mean, not, you'd have to turn over enough of them. Sure. 
I don't know. That's not the case now. I mean, now I do cleanups in the river and it's just how much plastic and that we get out of it. Sure. I was just in an art gallery show the other day and I'm looking at this painting. It's a beautiful painting of water. And this woman walks up to me and says, it's her painting. And she starts talking about what her stuff is. And she says she's very environmental and she likes to show she's painting earth before humans came by and messed it all up. Now, how did it happen? How long ago? We must've had a transition from when humans came by and were part of the world to, and mess it up. Like the default is we mess it up. We're just messing everything up. And I think it's pretty hard to deny. There are some places that, that we make look nice, I guess. And I've definitely read books where people say that I believe erroneously that nature is harsh and scary. And luckily we've paved, well, not they wouldn't say paved over, but like we've made it safer in many areas. Now, I don't agree with that because our ancestors lived as homo sapiens for 300,000 years and they did just fine without the wheel. Mm-hmm. Or my big example is that people say we have to be so industrious and have to have all this technology to make it livable. I'm like, there's an animal, there's an animal called the sloth. <laughs> <laughs> is the most unindustrious thing you could imagine. It just hangs around. Mm-hmm. Actually, and then I, I looked it up and they've been around, it was 28 million years ago that it separated from whatever it's most, the common ancestor of whatever's closest to it. And it did fine for 20 million years. Then a whole bunch of subspecies of sloth went extinct in the past like 10, 15,000 years, likely because of people. So like nature sure. can handle, it can handle fine. People, not we damaged it. But I'm getting off topic that what you shared, I think, is I hope to help people get in touch with that and want to, I believe the more that they do that, the more that they'll want to restore it and protect it. Yeah, well, that's what you said. It's like personal experience and connection. And you have to be in the lives that we lived or the lives that are most comfortable. We eliminate that connection. So we have to proactively make that connection. And if you're not an outdoor person, then you make a connect. I mean, I think you strive to do that, but you make a connection with your local farmer. You make a connection with, you know what I mean? There's all these ways to make connections. It doesn't necessarily have to be through like physical activity outside. There's like a group, this place that we take the boys and there's an artist collective that come and do watercolors of these like uh, bird sanctuary habitat things. And it's amazing. But like that's there. And then there's like somebody else that's like training for a marathon, right? Like it's an appreciation that connects you, something that you like, everything that you love, you can do outside. I would say even this is probably, this is just off the top of my head. So I haven't really thought this out, but like, even if your thing is social media, like you can get some amazing imagery on your phone without filters of the outside to post there. I'm trying to think of like the farthest thing away from interaction, like a connection to the outdoors. And like, if you put yourself out there and you have access to spaces that are safe outside, you can find that connection. So you're, you're making it harder because by saying you can make that connection, go back and start. That's to me, putting the cart before the horse. You don't know what's inside the other person until you find out. When I ask you, you talk about those things and then you can make the connection automatically. So if I try to tell someone else, you know what will connect you with the environment? Do this thing. For one thing, it's coercive, it's cajoling, but more valuable is if I ask and patiently wait and 
that person shares with me what the environment means to them, that will show what they can do. Absolutely. And sometimes they can't make that connection. So I think you're right. The first question is like, what do you love to do? And what's your connection with nature? What does it mean to you? I mean, that's what I usually ask. Yeah. And if you don't have a connection with nature, how can that thing you love be connected to nature? Let's like spitball on some options of like how you can do that. I haven't tried that direction. I prefer to start with what is in their hearts. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And it's often suppressed and repressed and because society, it's growing the GDP is what that's what gets you elected, not sure. protecting, you know, man, I was just watching this documentary about how much every president is auctioning off more oil rights and things like that. It's just sickening, to me, sickening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the oil companies, I guess it's joyful. Sure. <laughs> was my voice just dripping with uh, <laughs> disdain there? <laughs> little bit, little bit. So now I'm curious to find, you took on a personal commitment And I'm curious how that went. And because I don't think we made the depth of connection last time as we just did this time. But do you remember? So what did you commit to? So my commitment was to go to our local farmer's market and find something that was in season that I had never, like figure out a way to support the farmer's market with what was in season. Because I feel like everybody can get like here, apples, peaches, you know, like you get into the fall and it's like bountiful, right? It's like the cornucopia farmer's market situation. But like in April, like what is there to eat? And the answer is there's always things to eat. I just need the breadth of knowledge to be able to eat those things or the willingness to try new things. So that was my commitment was that I was going to go to the farmer's market and I was going to make something, buy something that was in season that had been grown fresh and make it and try to get on a path of for one, two, I mean, hopefully it increases, but like one, two nights a week, having our part of our meal be from there, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like more traditional ways of getting food and ways of preparing food. So that was my commitment. And yeah, I presume people have lived around Boulder for Five ten thousand years, mm-hmm. and so they weren't shipping stuff in from California all that time, right? And you also, I got you sound like you in your podcast of like I'm just going to try it, and like I know I'll fail, yes, and yeah. So, yeah. And so, how did it go? Well, it was. I was really glad that we had the scheduled follow up appointment because it was kind of the only thing that kept me accountable. And I think like that's such a huge piece in some of these initiatives is that we say something or we're inspired by something or it's whatever. And then it becomes too inconvenient or becomes too difficult or it's, is it worth it? You can easily justify the like, what difference does this make? Whatever. But I like, I had made this commitment. I know we were going to get back on it and I didn't want to get on and say, well, I didn't have time. Right. So uh, I think I missed it. The first week we ended up not going. The second week we went but didn't, I didn't buy anything new. I just like frantic anyway. So by the third week we went and we got some like spring greens and all kinds of different stuff and just did a salad, but I'd always done that before. So I wasn't really like, I wasn't expanding it. I was like, well, it doesn't, not really what I committed to. Mm-hmm. So we had these leftover radishes and I am like a root vegetable person, but radishes just are my thing. And I was like, well, I gotta, I like, what am I going to do with these radishes? So I like got online. It's like, what how do you cook radishes and so i did this just like 
really easy bake that was just like washed them, chopped them up, threw them in with some melted butter, salt, pepper, garlic, and roasted them for like 30 minutes. And they came out and like just used what we had left. I think that was also like another piece to me is like making sure that like going through more efficiently the produce that we have when we go to the farmer's market. And so it was just feel like, especially with kids, I had to like try it out first. And even my wife was like, wait, what are you doing? Why are you cooking radishes tonight? <laughs> like who, like what, who eats just roasted radishes? I was like, I don't know. Kind of, it's like butter and garlic. How bad can it be? Mm. So I made them and I brought them out and I certainly overcooked <laughs> them, but then like lost track of them. I had to put the kid down, whatever. And the first bite where they were terrible. I was, they, and I had read on the thing that they get to be pretty bland, kind of like any cook or root vegetable, especially when I like cook the hell out of them, Mm -hmm. but you cooked them. They're like kind of bland. So I doused them with salt again, stirred it up and was like, well, these are like, they're okay. And then it feels like almost with anything in butter, like as it sat, it got better. And so I kept going around and like popping the radishes in and then, you know, ended up eating like everything that we had. And that was like my vegetable for the day. And so I feel like there was a couple of lessons learned there of like, when I said that to you, I was like, that's the easiest thing in the world. We're like going to the farmer's market tomorrow. Boom, boom. I'm going to have this done in 24 hours from this commitment. And then I'll like move on to the next thing. It's like how you envision how it's going to go and then how it really does are so different. So I think a couple of the lessons were like a accountability, like in any of these lifestyle changes, you have to have something that's going to hold you accountable or you can talk yourself out of it. Two, I don't know if I would ever make roasted radishes as a side dish for my family, but I feel more comfortable now incorporating those kind of like hearty root vegetables into, I was like, I know how I would do the radishes differently. Like, I I feel like I have a better knowledge and it opened me up to like turnips and like all the other things that are out there right now. I feel like to do a roasted vegetable medley, I was like, I could probably, that makes more sense. And also part of it was like, I'm just done with radishes. Let me find something else. Let me move on to the next thing. But it was a good, I feel like, especially when we're in our routines and we do the things, we don't have the time or bandwidth to expand our, what we're preparing, what we're cooking. We just like get in our ruts and then that gets so boring. So it did, it was fun to be like anything that I could buy anything there. And with a little bit of time, and enough salt, I could cook it for like, inspired me to be more adventurous as well. And give myself a little bit of grace of like, it wasn't maybe exactly that I fulfill it in the way that I had my initial conversation, inspired conversation with you led me to believe I would know, but I did do the thing. And I think it will have a change. My patterns will change because of it. And so I feel like that's a win to me. It sounds like uh, a couple of comments. I, I can't help but think you put butter on it and I feel like maybe a little pecorino or Parmesan shaved onto there. Yeah. Cheese would have been great. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or for the vegans, uh, some nutritional yeast. Yeah. Yeah. Just like a spray. It's like needed like something. It's so funny to think that I wanted like the radishes to be more earthy, but when you cooked them, they like oh, so with mushrooms. kind of lost that. Right. Yeah. Mushrooms would have been good. Yeah. I feel like it often happens that community ends up like when I do new food stuff, then yeah, I had a really great experience. I've been fermenting because my fridge has been unplugged for so yeah. When you, when you talk to your friends about uh, 
the latest thing and they're, you know, they're on this treadmill of like, why do I have to do this? Unplug your fridge for a little while, tell them it's been unplugged and then see, have them be like, oh man, that beats, like there's no more efficient fridge than an unplugged one. Right. And then you can outdo them if there's a little game like that going on. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Absolutely. Oh, that's cool. What you've done with your fridge. That's really nice. Yeah, mine's unplugged, so I can't do that. But <laughs> <laughs> but I've been fermenting stuff. And so a friend came over and I gave him some of my chutney. So I just chop up fruit, put a little salt on it, let it ferment. And it took me like a long time to know about fermentation to actually try that. Because first I thought that I thought it's really risky and you got to do it just right. But it turns out it's actually very, very forgiving. And the bacteria and stuff that grows that's symbiotic is also very stable. So like you can put a lot of salt, a little salt, always works. Anyway, a friend comes over and I give him some and he's like, ah, he didn't like it. But it's a chutney. A little while ago, a friend was visiting from India. He's from India. And I gave him a taste and he's like, this is great. So I was like, ah, there we go. It's authentic or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking it really worked out well. And then he starts saying, all right, you've been fermenting it over here. Put it out in the sun. And he starts telling me about spices to put in, which I didn't, that's where I am now. I wasn't there yet. I didn't know. And that's where you are. Wow. It's like, you don't know what, now that you've done it. And now it seemed to me the cheesy flavor or the nutritional yeast. And then when you said earthy, I thought mushrooms right away. Mm-hmm. That communication pops up a lot. Right. Oh, and now I have to go back a step to when you were talking about the river and Boulder. But I had a guest on this podcast. His name is Jeff Colvin. I don't know if you would know him, but he lives... I think maybe Boulder or near Boulder. Mm-hmm. And for his, he committed to hiking up a mountain near him. And normally he would drive, normally if he was going to do that, he would drive there, but he decided to walk there. And on the walk there, he decided instead of going up as he normally would, something, I forget what prompted him to go down along the river instead. And the river, this is maybe February, I forget. And it was winter and it was, and it was frozen over. So he, he's like, there's nothing like more childlike than walking on the frozen river. And then it cracked and he fell through the ice uh-huh. and you're talking about the cold and he fell through and he got soaked and he was like, this is a great experience. He got to discover that wool still keeps you warm when you're, when it's wet. And he had a really fun experience and it was rewarding. Like I had this image that I forget if he said it to me or if I thought like, was he frozen? Like, walking like Frankenstein's monster because he couldn't bend it. I think the clothes were frozen. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so that's before. Anyway, when we experience these things and share them, I think this happens. If there's this community aspect that kicks in of we want to share. And I'm not sure how it'll work out because you weren't saying like this was the best thing ever. And it sounds like you're going to keep working at it. And if you're like me, then at some point, not too far from now, you'll have figured out how to make it work. And Right. Then you'll have people say to you, like, how do you do that? And you'll hear them, that sounds impossible. Right. And yet, and this is your TEDx talk, right? It's like you just try and fail and then you get to it and you overcome these vulnerabilities and then it's not so mysterious anymore. And I think that that's like part of what you were saying with your friend and falling into the river is like, we feel like adventure is going to make us less adventurous. Like that something's going to happen so bad that we won't want to, that we'll like hunker down. And so often adventure, whether that's like trying to cook something new or walking on the frozen ice or like whatever, you learn something, like you gain something. Like you can't even call any of those things the overcooked roasted 
radishes or falling through that's like none of those things are a failure it's just like a human experience and like then you learn that whatever this is how you test the ice like you take away from that how to do it better and i think that community piece is so great because you know how to cook who knows how to cook radishes the person that grows the radishes so like to have that conversation to take a couple seconds of the farmer's bark to be like hey trying to do this new thing (laughs) i don't know what to cook do you have any ideas right like none of these things that we're doing none of these lifestyle changes like we shouldn't be so brash to think we're the first person that's ever done that Mm -hmm. right yeah like (laughs) there are other people that do that and our willingness to make that connection really emboldens how adventurous we're willing to be. You know what I mean? Had your friend talked to somebody else who was like a local guy that he knew that used to hike frozen rivers would know the perfect stretch, right? Like we can create this sense of community and create these feedback systems in our adventures. And a huge piece of that then would be accountability. You know what I mean? Cause then I go back and have this conversation of this farmer that I feel connected to. And they say, Hey, try blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. You'll really like it with the stat piece that just came up, right? Like it isn't a whim when there's community around it, when there's accountability around it. I feel like that's a huge piece. And so it, you have to see these things, I feel like as a lesson. And like you said, if all of a sudden I'm, I become this amazing seasonal chef and somebody asks me, well, how did you do that? And you're like, Oh, pop, 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 pop. We rarely go back to remember our failures. I feel like that was like such a huge part of the TEDx experience for me was like, I don't want to tell you how I'm great. Like who wants to hear about that? It's not, that doesn't matter. And it's probably debatable at best. Right. But like, I want to tell you how I failed and how I got to where I was and what I realized along the way. And hoping that that failure, misstep, mistake is actually what made me a better person. And if you've had a similar failure, misstep, mistake, can you see it as a stepping stone as well, right? Can you have that self-reflection and that almost grace with yourself to see any of those things as a learning experience to me is just so much more human and so much more relatable. And so I feel like that's, but it's easy to say it. It's a lot easier to, you know, it's a lot harder to, to do it. But I think, again, we're like, I'm all over the place, but I think part of what you're saying is like, it's about your human experience. And like, what do you love? I love human connection. I love small businesses. So like my connection to that farmer's market thing isn't radishes. It's the person growing the radishes. That is what I love. The like person you recognize, that's what like lights my fire. And so how do I bring, and I even think about that, right? Cause it's just like this thing that I'm checking off the list. Cause I got to do it. Cause I told you I do it and I have to come back and I'm like a person of my word. You know, like that was like, it was very much a responsibility not a connection, but now talking about it with you now is like, that's what I need. I need to make friends with the farmer. Then it's easy. Then that's like, then there's no work in that to me. That's like all joy and pleasure. And so my engagement and my willingness to make decisions that support that relationship are almost second nature to me. And if that's what gets me there, then that's what gets me there. But like, how do we make it more long lasting? I think that's individual, but for me, it's human connection. Then, so that's now my new path, right? Of like the why, the how, the all of it is, is human connection. So you may be picking up on the, how it came through trial and error of this technique, the, what I call the aim method of these steps of what does the environment mean to you? And I invite you to think of something to do to act on it. And then scheduling a second conversation. 
Mm -hmm. because that's accountability. That's not an accident. That's right. People committing to something without that accountability, no guarantee it's going to happen. Sure. But what I can guarantee is that when they do it, they'll get a reward. If it really is coming from their connection with nature. And, And I know one of the big discoveries that came from this podcast that I only afterward did I realize was that everyone has an answer to what does the environment mean to you? It's unique to everyone. And I can't tell what it's going to be until it comes out. I love hearing the answers. And that means there's always going to be something. If there's an emotion there, emotion means motivation. And then there's something to act. Another thing I've learned is that in most cases, almost all cases, there's going to be community. There's going to be connection. If we let it fester, I mean, if we don't try to solve it, we isolate ourselves. Say like, forest fires. And we just say, oh, well, that's terrible. I wish there was something I could do about it. But if you say, I'm going to do something about it, let's say a a fire burning in a place. Actually, I had a guest who he used to go up in the mountains and there was a cabin he stayed at. And then he went there after a forest fire and there was just the hearth left, everything else gone, charred. Oh, wow. So for him, a forest fire is now very, very meaningful. Mm -hmm. I don't have to work hard to find out to nudge him to not nudge, but if I invite him to think of something to act, it's not going to take long for him because that's really visceral. And I was just in Philadelphia over the weekend where I grew up. And if you saw those who saw my TEDx talk, when I talk about my sledding hill growing up, in fact, a post the other day was, I was there last November, March and May. And each time I go and take pictures and post them up and you can see the change that you're talking about Sure. and leaves versus not leaves snow versus not, there wasn't snow any time recently. Sadly, that's a big thing. Yeah. I associate it with snow, running up and down the hill, well, sledding down and running up and the dogs. And They don't sell flexible flyers in Philadelphia anymore. Why would they? Because, you know, and people just take these like saucers that they probably throw out at the end of the year if they even use them. And anyway, but that motivates me to act because I go there and I pick up litter now that was never there before. And that really motivates me. Actually, this time I went this time. I was thinking, all right, I'm going to go down to the stream because that's where most of the litter is. And I was both delighted and I was delighted to see how overgrown as a kid rarely went there in the warm weather. And it was like, I mean, there's a a road right there, but it felt like dinosaur, like uh, giant leafy plants that were just growing. And whatever litter was there, I couldn't see because it was underneath giant leaves. And it was just like, this is what supposed to be like and my feet are like going through like it's marshy because it it just rained i'm like all right so my feet are wet fine and it was just lovely doesn't do justice wonderful yeah and yeah and one of the things that i don't have a great relationship with my father and when i went there in march no when i went there last i don't know one recent visit there I do these workshops where I walk people through the exercise, this process. And so when I do the workshops, oftentimes I ask someone to do it back to me so that I can practice it, a volunteer from the audience. And so I ended up committing to lots of things like this. And a lot of people think, oh, Josh, you're so extreme. I'm like, every time I get asked to do, like now I've done enough times that the more times I do it, the more times it's done, I'm led through it, the more things I find. Sure. It gets easier and easier each time I do it, not harder. It's not like, oh, there's like 10 things to do and then you're done. On the contrary, the more that I do it, the more I want to do more. And the more people 
ask me what the environment means to me, sometimes I give the same answers I've given before, but I, there's always a nuance. But oftentimes there's something dramatically new. Anyway, so I committed to, I knew I was going to ride my bike to fill it. Actually, I did a whole series of these. Sorry, I'm going to walk you through this. Tough luck if you don't, if, if you find it boring. Oh no, I'm excited. So one person, I was, I got invited to do this uh, fundraiser, a bike ride from New York to Philadelphia. And the fundraising is for East Coast Greenway. I'm sure you know about how canals and rail lines are being converted to bike paths. Mm -hmm. They want to connect all of these to get a path, a nonstop path from Maine to Florida. And wow. so that's a cause I'm kind of into. What I want to do is make all those paths into car lanes and turn I-95 into a bike path. That's what I want to see. And then take the other one back too. And like have the cars be like the second thing that like we have to do a fundraiser to get. Right. Reminds me of that poster. It'll be a great day when the schools and have all they need and the Air Force has to hold a bake sale to buy a bomber. Do you ever see that poster growing up? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It'll be a great day when bikes can go everywhere and cars have to have a, like a bake sale in order to build a, a side road. Yeah. Anyway, so I committed, I'd been invited to go on that ride and I was like, do I want to do it or not? And so someone did something, you know what? I commit. And so I committed to the bike ride. Then another time before that ride, someone's walking me through this because I'm training someone else. I also train people to do this, to lead within organizations. I'm trying to lead leaders and create leaders who create leaders and who create leaders. Mm -hmm. And so I commit to not just riding there because I could ride there and then take the train back that night. So I commit also to staying at my dad's house in I grew up in Philly and going to the sledding hill. Then another time before that happens, a third commitment I do is I commit to walking in the sledding hill with my father. So the past bunch of times that I've walked, that I've visited with my dad, it's mostly been in New York. Sometimes it's seen at my sister's place in Queens. And then I'm not really visiting him because there's like the kids running around, the grandkids, and it's not just me and him. The times when it's been me and him, the past couple of times I can think of have been like, he's passing through from there through Penn Station, Penn Station. Like we're sat on the steps of uh, Moynihan Hall across the street and there's like syringes and homeless and the smell of the, and he went and bought some bottled water. I'm like, you don't need the bottled water. And he's just like defiantly buying it in front of me. Like he's not sticking in my face because for him, it's not an issue. He doesn't see an issue with buying bottled water. So it wasn't a pleasant visit. Then I do the ride to Philly, which is a fantastic ride. I go into the sledding hill on my own. Fantastic. And then we go, oh, I didn't walk to the sledding hill. I walked to my two sisters and I bought him a bench in by Wissican Creek, which is this beautiful park. And he's super happy because it has a plaque from us to him for his 80th birthday. And we walked there and it was the best conversation I've had with my father in, in forever. And he didn't change. I didn't change. But syringes versus streams. Right. I think I can find a causal relationship there. Yeah, absolutely. Of what led to the pleasant conversation. We're living in, there's a certain point in time, maybe 50 years ago, I would guess that before I'm making this up, but I, something like this, that everyone always lived within walking distance of solitude in the woods or being able to listen to the waves lapping on the shore and there's no humans to hear or, you know, something like that. And now it's not available, but even the slightest bit of it, just an hour with my dad walking in paths in the woods, best conversation we've had. 
no big deal. You know, it was just walking in the woods. That's all. And how much of the strife was just because, I don't know if you can hear right now, like the cars outside, it's not pleasant. They're not, when I meditate, I prefer not to put earplugs in, but the sound of Sixth Avenue and the cars honking, I think when there was a time when earplugs, if it was not earplugs, the not earplugs meant you heard birds chirping. Right. I don't think that'll break my meditation, but like, uh, uh, that, like that does. Sure. Something you said woke me up to, it was the community stuff, the connection with people, the, the pleasantness of nature. It's automatic. Yep. I mean, I guess it's not totally automatic. You can get eaten by a lion in some contexts, but yeah, you got me thinking. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thanks for sharing that story about your dad too. That's awesome. Yeah. He listens to this podcast. I don't know how many episodes he listens to. Oh, hopefully. But every now and then he call, every now and then he's like, he tells me something about it. He heard and I was like, oh, cool. He listened to that one. He listened. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, hey, Josh's dad, if you're listening. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe I'll point him out about this one. So yeah, the next two questions that I ask are usually what was the emotional experience and what was, how did you interact with other people? But I think you've kind of answered those. Mm-hmm. But Good. I'll formally ask him anyway. Is there anything that you didn't touch on about the emotional experience of this commitment and your practice of it? Well, I think guilt for sure. Mm-hmm. Like there's the weight of the guilt of not doing it, not doing more, not doing enough, not kind of half-assing roasted radishes. Like I think there's a guilt to A, my commitment isn't enough. B, I can't even do the small commitment that I committed to, right? Like it's, you're in this weird juxtaposition of like, I feel bad that I didn't do more and I can't even do what I committed to do. So I feel like, around a lot of these kind of lifestyle changes that seems pretty relatable. Mm-hmm. So that would be one. I don't think that's my overarching one. That's just the one that we haven't talked about. So I think that was there. I think, you know, humility, I feel like in the, something I thought was going to be so simple. Mm-hmm. It was actually harder than I thought and required more intention and maybe unwillingness to bring things that require that much additional feeling like I have a lot of efforts in my life right now that I won more. So I feel like I had a little resentment towards that. And then trying to going through therapy is really getting me to name my emotions. So mm-hmm. I think there was like a sense of satisfaction and like lightness of it, of like, I made it such a big deal and it was legitimately like 30 minutes of like, I mean, you know what I mean? Like it isn't as big. It's like, weirdly isn't as big as I made it out to be, but also so much more fulfilling, like how you go along with it. Then you just do it. And you're like, I could have done this like through, it wasn't that big of a deal. We make things, I make things such a big deal. This like daunting project. I have to like, ah, figure out a whole new something. It's like not that big of a deal. Like take it easy on yourself. So there's like a little like laughing at myself and the seriousness with which I was taking getting farmer's market food and successfully cooking it. Like it's, I think that kind of happened. So I think those were the gamut of emotions and something that was so small, but also the kind of positive thing at the end of like, A, that wasn't that big of a deal. And B, the desire and motivation to do it again and better, not because of my commitment to you, but because I want to do it different and better. 
that's what this is about. And you in Boulder, in like Nature City, had that available all the time. And, you, and I heard you say you wish you had done it earlier, mm-hmm. if that's the right, uh, fair way to put it. Yeah. And one of the reasons I'm creating, teaching people this technique so that, and, you know, creating leaders who create leaders and so forth. One day, and I hope it's me, but if someone gets to that person first, I'm going to be sitting there with the CEO of Axon and we're going to have the same conversation. And that person's going to say, I could have done this earlier. I felt guilt, but you know, the satisfaction afterward, and I want to do it again. And it's going to affect all of Exxon. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to stop Extinction Rebellion. I support them. I support 350.org. That's confrontational. And I agree that that's necessary, especially if they've broken the law and things like that. But I think there's also a hand up that they're not going to get on their own and they're going to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. But I think it's in them. They have a connection. Every single employee at the place, every shareholder, they all have a connection to nature. They all have something that matters to them. And I believe that they are going to, I'm going to help them to want to change from within. Yeah. They're going to say what you said, you know, in their version. Sure. I could have done it earlier. And now that I'm started, I want to do more. Right. You inspiring me. Oh, you, well, you're, I mean, without the commitment and the accountability, I never, I would never would have gotten there. So same back at you. How about with people? Is there anything more to add with if, how this affected relationships with anyone? The experience up to this point, no, but I foresee it affecting relationship moving forward. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, that's part of it too is like this realization of a motivation for me being human connection is I took this on very, like it was my commitment to you. So I didn't involve my family. I didn't, I mean, I think I like in passing told my wife what I was doing until I had to like roast the vegetables. And then she was like, what? Like <laughs> you told a guy in a podcast that you're going to roast shared radishes and now you're doing it like nine o'clock at night. I was like, well, it's kind of like that. Yes. But you know, it was not involving my son. You know, like why next time wouldn't I, again, because what motivates me is human connection. Why wouldn't I take Luke through the farmer's market and be like, pick anything and we'll cook it. Pick the funkiest, strangest, brightest color, pick anything and you and I will make it taste good. Mm -hmm. That is a motivation to me. Like that's not, there's no guilt associated with that. That's like fun, right? So my kind of, like we talked about connection with a farmer or two farmers or the people that are there selling, like, that is motivational to me. So I, I think as my desire to continue this lifestyle tack, I guess, is to root it in human connection because that personally for me makes it more sustainable. I guess that would be the human relationship piece that feels like that will change moving forward because it would have been helpful to integrate that in the very beginning. It kind of goes back to what we talked about before of like, Figure out what motivates you, not commitment, not whatever. Like if that's what gets you there, that's fine. But like figure out what motivates you and then make that an integral part of your lifestyle change, which like sounds so obvious here, but I like had to get through it to be like, well, that would have been a lot easier if I would have brought in a variety of people in my life that I love or new friends and relationships that I want to make. Like this would have felt less like a task and more like a joy and like, who doesn't want to do joyful things? Like who needs one more thing on their list to do, but to have it be like an experience would be, that seems awesome to me. I'm really curious to hear 
in a month, six months, a year, how this is propagated. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to put on my calendar to check in with you in some time. Yeah. Give me through that. I want to hear. I, let's do it in the fall. Like when I get through the season and we'll see all the crazy things. Cause I remember being not having a lot of non-traditional produce, right? Like um, only having conventional produce. I remember coming out here or being as seeing produce and like always, I remember being in college weirdly and always buying like one weird fruit. Like one thing that I'd never seen before. You're like, what is that? I don't even know how to eat it. Like, let's what, I don't know. I was like, I'm the one doing the grocery shopping now. So I can buy whatever I want. If I want to buy a star fruit, that's what I'm going to do. And like doing that and be like, oh, I'm never getting those again or other things. Right. And that like knowledge seeking adventurous part of it. And so to think of doing that with Luke would just be amazing to be like, all right, buddy, every time we go to the farmer's market, you pick one thing you want to cook and we won't, and it can be whatever. I like love that idea so much, but, and like takes me back to like exploration with food in a very different way with very different intention, but like that willingness to be like, it's not going to taste bad. Like we do like, you just, you don't know what it tastes like until you taste it. So you got to like get it to do it. Right. It totally resonates with me. I didn't get it in the past couple of years, but they're stinging nettles. I'm like, that sounds terrible. So I got to buy it. That one, I just ate it like in a salad. It didn't, I didn't do it right. So I got to, I'll have to do that again sometime. Another time I bought this giant horseradish fruit, like the size of a femur. I'm like, I had only seen horseradish in jars. So naturally I bought that. And I really loved, like I just shave a little bit off and put in the stews and it's like, it's so much more flavor than the, in a jar. Right. And then, you know, I just get like the watermelon radishes that like on the, actually the CSA does that. The CSA sends stuff that I'm like, the rule is just whatever that comes. Oh, fiddlehead ferns that I got with my mom and stepfather. Yo, aren't those so good? I didn't know anything about those. And then that's like what my wife's from North Florida. And like, that's like a thing, fiddlehead ferns. I was like, what? It was crazy to me. They're delicious. Yes. And they must be cooked. Don't eat them raw. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I learned that one. <laughs> So yeah, this is fun. This is to me is like, people say, oh, I, they want to travel the world to taste things all over the place. I'm like, it's in your backyard. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, there's like in the Tao Te Ching, if you want the world, if you want to travel far, you have to learn how to stay in one place. Mm. If you want to reach high, you got to get on your knees, something like that. Mm-hmm. If you want to know your greatest strength, you have to bring yourself to your greatest weakness. And it makes sense if you think about it. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to explore the world, like if the reason you travel is you want to see more and more of the world, get rid of the bucket list. Mm-hmm. Stop going elsewhere. And there's more that you can find right there. Mm-hmm. I'm exploring this one. This contrast is starting to hit me of how much craving going elsewhere Actually, we're not getting what we think we are. Right. Well, we've been talking for a long time. And uh, I love it. Yeah, I could seriously talk for a lot longer with you. And, but I think we should wrap up. Yeah, absolutely. But I look forward to the follow-up in the fall. That'll be awesome. I'm excited about it. Is there anything you want to wrap up? Any, any message to the listeners that you want to close with? No, I would say that just from my experience, just do one thing again, like everything we talk about, it feels so daunting, feels so whatever, but I think just to the root of everything that we've been talking about of like, make it joyful, make it 
fun and fun is very different for a lot of different people, but like figure out that and go from there. Right. Like that's just going to make it about human connection, make it about all these other things that are going to create after you do that, like kind of initial accountability, which I think almost has to be pretty objective to get you there. But then as you go through the process, like how do you personalize it? How do you make it subjective to make it sustainable for you? And I think that's by rooting it in things that you find joy and love in. Joy, fun, love. Ash Beckham, thank you very much. Oh, Josh, I loved it. Loved it, loved it. Can't wait. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.